Welcome to the Good News Ride Home for Friday, May 22nd, 2020. I'm Jackson Bird. More on that study projecting 36,000 people could have been saved if the U.S. had locked down sooner. How to safely socialize if you choose to do so. Bots are spreading coronavirus conspiracy theories on Twitter. And Pac-Man turns 40 today. The hottest new renewable resource on the moon. The 25-year-old skincare consultant fielding Elon Musk's missed calls. And some recommended videos to watch this weekend. In vaccine news, a new vaccine developed in China appears to be safe and effective based on an early-stage trial of 108 participants. Quoting the New York Times, the vaccine reported today was created with another virus, an adenovirus called AD5, that easily enters human cells. But the virus is one that many people already have been exposed to, and some experts have worried that too many already have antibodies to AD5, limiting its usefulness as a way to deliver a vaccine, end quote. And earlier this week, researchers in Boston published research showing that a prototype vaccine successfully protected rhesus macaques from infection. With over 100 research teams around the world working on a vaccine from multiple different angles, scientists are becoming cautiously optimistic that a vaccine will be developed in record time. But then the challenge will become manufacturing and distribution. On the treatment front, today The Lancet published the largest study to date of the risks and benefits of treating COVID-19 patients with anti-malarial drugs like hydroxychloroquine, and found that those treated with the drugs had a significantly higher risk of death. CNN's Ryan Strzok laid out the numbers in clear language on Twitter, quoting him, One in 11 patients in the control group died. One in six patients treated with chloroquine or hydroxychloroquine alone died. One in five treated with chloroquine and an antibiotic died. And one in four treated with hydroxychloroquine and an antibiotic died. End quote. Alabama is facing a shortage of ICU beds. The United Kingdom will be quarantining anyone who flies into the country for two weeks starting on June 8th, and 1,200 pastors have signed a declaration protesting California Governor Newsom's restrictions on in-person worship services. Researchers at Carnegie Mellon have found that almost half of all tweets about the coronavirus pandemic are likely posted by bots. Quoting NPR, researchers culled through more than 200 million tweets discussing the virus since January and found that about 45% were sent by accounts that behave more like computerized robots than humans. Researchers identified more than 100 false narratives about COVID-19 that are proliferating on Twitter by accounts controlled by bots. Among the misinformation disseminated by bot accounts, tweeted conspiracy theories about hospitals being filled with mannequins or tweets that connected the spread of the coronavirus to 5G wireless towers, a notion that is patently untrue, end quote. And as schools reopen in many parts of the world, teachers are getting creative on enforcing social distancing. To help students conceptualize and stick to the distance, one elementary school in Shanxi had them construct one-meter-long wings to wear on their backs all day throughout school. 
and it is pretty freaking adorable if I'm being honest, so definitely go check out the link in the show notes to see a photo. Yesterday, I briefly mentioned this new study that says lockdown delays in the U.S. may have cost at least 36,000 lives. It's a pretty bold statement, so I thought I should follow it up with a little bit more background on the study today. So these numbers come from disease modelers at Columbia University in a new preprint that has yet to be peer-reviewed. Quoting the New York Times, The findings are based on infectious disease modeling that gauges how reduced contact between people starting in mid-March slowed transmission of the virus. Dr. Shaman's team modeled what would have happened if those same changes had taken place one or two weeks earlier and estimated the spread of infections and deaths until May 3rd. The results show that as states reopen, outbreaks can easily get out of control unless officials closely monitor infections and immediately clamp down on new flare-ups. And they show that each day that officials waited to impose restrictions in early March came at a great cost, end quote. The model showed, quote, if the United States had begun imposing social distancing measures one week earlier than it did in March, about 36,000 fewer people would have died in the coronavirus outbreak. And if the country had begun locking down cities and limiting social contact on March 1st, two weeks earlier than most people started staying home, the vast majority of the nation's deaths, about 83 percent, would have been avoided, the researchers estimated, end quote. The study notes that by the time social distancing was put in place in mid-March, it was too late in many places. Quote, tens of thousands of people had already been infected by that point, researchers later estimated. But a lack of widespread testing allowed those infections to go undetected, hiding the urgency of an outbreak that most Americans still identified as a foreign threat, end quote. The Times does point out, however, that while most Americans agree with and have followed social distancing measures, they may not have done so when the disease didn't look as serious. The model here is based on the assumption that just as many people would have taken lockdown measures just as seriously without visible proof of disaster before them. So it's an interesting study to show the importance of continuing to take this seriously and acting more quickly in the future, but there's only so much we can do with what-ifs and retrospective discoveries. They won't bring back the people that we lost. With the three-day holiday weekend upon us here in the U.S., a lot of people are probably going to be tempted to go to the beach, go to cookouts, or just somehow socialize more than they have been doing for the past few months. Based on the proliferation of articles about how to safely see your friends, I think a lot of experts are starting to get the sense that this abstinence-only kind of lockdown restriction might not be working for everyone the longer it goes on. And while it is still safest to stay home and physically isolated whenever possible, it's clear that that isn't always practical or advisable for mental health in the long term. And it's probably best we understand how to limit our risk if and when we choose to bend some of the rules. Now, the general rules of thumb are outside is better than indoors, smaller groups are better than larger groups, a shorter period of time is better than a longer period of time, wearing a mask is helpful, and your relative risk depends on how prevalent COVID-19 is in your community. All that said, if you want a more permanent solution than maybe a socially distanced picnic or a walk with a friend, some people are starting quarantine pods. 
where a few friends or two families might agree to see each other, taking on all the inherent risks and trusting each other to adhere to the same level of precautions. Professor Stefan Flash, an epidemiologist and mathematical modeler at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, who calls this contact clustering, is currently studying this concept to assess the risks. Quoting The Guardian, The experimental concept he is currently plugging into his model is that instead of keeping strictly to socializing within their own households, a couple of families or a group of friends could agree to form an exclusive social pod. Everyone in it would still avoid anything but essential contact with outsiders, but within the circle of trust, they could relax and let their guard down. Children could play together, adults might pool homeschooling duties to give themselves time to work, and lonely single people could find someone to hang out with. Crucially, they'd have to care enough about each other's welfare to be scrupulously faithful to the pod. Like lovers during the peak of the HIV epidemic trusting each other not to sleep around, each member's safety would rely on the others not sneakily seeing other friends on the side, and taking sensible precautions if they did need to go out. But if the worst happened and someone did accidentally bring the virus home, at least it should be relatively easy to trace contacts and contain the spread. It will be weeks before Flash's modeling produces even a preliminary idea of whether any of this is feasible without pushing the national infection rate unacceptably high, but other countries are venturing cautiously down a similar path. Belgium's elegantly named Deconfinement Committee has proposed letting groups of up to 10 people meet socially once a week, so long as it's always the same 10. In Israel, up to three families can share childcare. End quote. And as we've previously covered, New Zealand is also promoting a similar concept with their bubble model and public reminders to not break the bubble. Now, while these bubbles or pods or clusters may serve as a lifeline for some people, I think it's very important to keep in mind that loosening restrictions in any way will have some risk. And as we've been following the high numbers of household spread, this combining households approach might actually be more dangerous than it seems on the tin. As we face the reality of just how long some form of social distancing will continue, however, experts acknowledge that people will start forming these pods or bending the rules whether public health departments sanction it or not, so it's better we're all aware of risks and best practices of these alternatives. And quoting Time, Limiting social contact as hard as it is really is an altruistic move. Even if you personally accept the risk of seeing another person, you need to consider how your actions could affect public health and burdens on the healthcare system. That sort of thinking should be extra motivation for taking as few risks as possible and minimizing the risks that you do take. Doing so will help bring the coronavirus pandemic to its end. End quote. And now for some good news. It's Pac-Man's 40th birthday today, and to celebrate, Indivia announced that they used AI to recreate a fully functional Pac-Man game. From the ground up, without an underlying game engine, after having the AI watch 50,000 play sessions of the game. The new AI model that created the Pac-Man replica was created by Indivia Research's GameGan. Quoting Mashable, the GAN in GameGAN is an acronym for Generative Adversarial Network. 
In short, a GAN is actually two neural networks working at cross-purposes, hence the adversarial, toward the shared goal of learning enough about a thing to create a convincingly real version of it. Not a carbon copy, mind you, but something that could pass itself off as a real, if different, thing. End quote. GANs are the underlying AI tech that enable the creation of things like deepfakes, but this is the first time GAN-based neural networks have been used to emulate a game engine, said Songwook Kim, an Indivia researcher and lead author on the project. Quote, We wanted to see whether the AI could learn the rules of an environment just by looking at the screenplay of an agent moving through the game. And it did. Indivia's Reb Liberadian, vice president of simulation technology, told Mashable, quote, It learned all of this without having any concept of how the game mechanics work in the code. It observed it just like a human might. End quote. You can see a trailer of the GameGAN version of Pac-Man at the link in the show notes, but it won't be available for gameplay until later this year. But before then, in June, Twitch will be launching a playable version of Pac-Man called Pac-Man Live Studio on the desktop version of the site, and this will mark the first game built directly into the Twitch platform. In the meantime, though, to celebrate Pac-Man's 40th birthday today, don't forget to spend some time playing the good old Pac-Man Google Doodle. Good news for Bear Grylls. As NASA prepares to install a permanent moon base by the end of the decade, scientists are getting creative to figure out how astronauts will build the base and generally function on limited resources. And the item that is turning out to be the most versatile commodity? The astronauts own pee. Quoting Wired, Earlier this year, a team of European researchers demonstrated that urea, the second most common compound in human urine after water, can be mixed with moon dirt and used for construction. The resulting material is a geopolymer which has similar properties to concrete and could potentially be used to build landing pads, habitats, and other structures on the moon. End quote. Most of that infrastructure will likely be built using 3D printers, but even so, the geopolymers will require a lot of water. Morellis Arnhoff, one of the co-authors of the research, discovered that urea works just as well as the superplasticizers we're accustomed to on Earth, like polycarboxylate, which are used to reduce the water content of concrete and geopolymers without sacrificing their flowability through things like 3D printer nozzles. The researchers propose storing the astronauts' urine in a tank and harvesting it for urea, as opposed to normal protocol of filtering out contaminants and recycling it. Others are more skeptical of this plan, however. Phil Metzger, a planetary scientist at the University of Central Florida and an expert on lunar resources, doubts there will be enough pee to go around on the moon, and thinks it's more likely geopolymers will be brought from Earth or created using water mined from lunar ice in the South Pole. Even if it's not used as a super plasticizer, however, urea could still be used as recycled drinking water, like it is on the International Space Station, or for growing food. Quoting again, Urea decomposes into ammonia and carbon dioxide, and certain types of microbes are great at converting ammonia into nitrate salts, a common type of fertilizer. This means that it could be used in a closed-loop life support system where the water from urine is recycled and the urea is used as feedstock for vegetable fertilizer. 
Researchers at the German Aerospace Center have been successfully growing vegetables in human urine for years, end quote. So yeah, as Wired concluded, space travel has never seemed so glamorous. And meet the 25-year-old skincare consultant and aspiring actress fielding Elon Musk's missed calls. Californian Lindsay Tucker got a new cell phone number about eight years ago, but is still receiving about three calls or texts every single day for Elon Musk. When NPR reached out to Musk, he confirmed that it was his old number and that he was surprised it was still out there. Based on the volume and content of the messages Tucker is receiving, however, there's reason to suspect that he might be handing out the number to deflect certain people. Or maybe it's just still listed in some places people have been looking up. Whatever the cause, Tucker responds to most of the messages she receives to let people know they have the wrong number and she can't help them further, something she says can sometimes feel like a full-time job but is also pretty amusing and a fascinating insight into the life of one of the world's most famous CEOs. She says she's gotten texts from former Disney exec John Lasseter, someone sharing a blueprint of a bionic limb, a call from the IRS about a complicated tax issue, and an inventor who was friends with Musk back in the 90s texted over some coronavirus research. Tucker says that she tries to keep up with news about Musk because she knows she'll get an influx of texts and calls anytime he makes a big announcement, and that she is not going to change her number, because at this point she's had it for eight years and built her own professional network with it that she doesn't want to lose contact with. This whole thing kind of makes you wonder about other people with public figures' old phone numbers. I mean, it must happen more than we realize, right? And think about how many of them get new numbers because there was some type of security breach on an old one. So the kinds of messages that you might get, too. It's interesting to think about, but I'm glad I don't have to put up with it. And before I leave you today, I thought I would just share a few cool videos that I've stumbled on this week that you can queue up over the weekend to help distract yourself from everything going on. First, David Lynch has been posting daily weather reports to his YouTube channel from his home in LA. They're just of the local weather as he observes it outside his window, so not super useful if you live somewhere other than Los Angeles, but still worth watching one or two or even more of the videos because everything about them, the lighting, his office, his voice is just so very Lynchian. A musician going by the name of Cornelius Link has created a medieval-style version of Foster the People's Pumped Up Kicks. Here's a quick preview. Also, a relevant recent episode from SciShow tackling the question, does hand sanitizer create superbugs? And finally, a deep dive on why some remastered music videos, like Smash Mouth's All-Star, look so terrible, while others, like Wham's Last Christmas, look pretty spectacular. Tom Scott investigates. Links to all of those videos are in the show notes for your weekend viewing pleasure. That is all for this week. As always, this show was produced by Ride Home Media. 
I will talk to you again on Tuesday. We're taking Memorial Day off. And if you are able to take it off as well, I hope you have a good three-day weekend and stay safe. 